This is C-SPAN's The Weekly for August 3rd, 2018. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. With Anthony Kennedy now officially retired as an associate justice onto the U.S. Supreme Court, the Senate is considering President Trump's nominee, D.C. Circuit Court Judge Brett Kavanaugh. The confirmation process includes meetings with senators as well as practice sessions for what likely will be a contentious confirmation hearing. What happens in those meetings? How does the nominee prepare? And how has the process evolved in the last half century? To answer those questions and more, we're joined by Ronald Weich. He is the dean of the University of Baltimore Law School, joining us on this week's episode of C-SPAN's The Weekly Podcast. He served as a former chief counsel for the Senate Judiciary Committee, legal advisor to Senate Democratic leader Harry Reid, and assistant attorney general in the Obama administration. He takes us behind the scenes and shares stories from previous Supreme Court nominees, including Justices Ginsburg, Breyer, Kagan, and Sotomayor, as well as Chief Justice John Roberts. Dean Weich, let's begin with the process as it's happening right now, this summer. The president nominating Brett Kavanaugh to serve on the U.S. Supreme Court as an associate justice. He is making the rounds on Capitol Hill What is he doing and who is he doing it with? Judge Kavanaugh is engaged in a process called courtesy calls. There's an interesting history here. It used to be that the nominee would meet with the chairman of the Judiciary Committee and the ranking member, perhaps the Senate majority leader and minority leader only. In recent years, recent nominations, nominees have reached further to all members of the Judiciary Committee and now all members of the Senate, and they will actually try to have 100 courtesy meetings. They tend not to get to all 100, but they'll get to many. And in these courtesy meetings, the nominee is introducing himself. He's accompanied by someone we've come to call a Sherpa. This is a a guide. In this case, it's former Senator John Kyle of Arizona, someone who is known to the senators, to kind of... um, introduce and and grease the wheels for the the nominee. And the nominee is asked questions by the senators. It's a bit odd, some of us find, that this happens behind closed doors. We don't know what questions are asked, what answers the nominee gives, what commitments are made. But the nominee is trying to uh, lay the groundwork for uh, being uh, acceptable to these senators. Now, what's happened this time around that's kind of interesting is the Democratic senators have said, in general, they don't want to meet with Judge Kavanaugh until there's a document production and there's a dispute over what documents will be produced to the Senate. One Democratic senator, Joe Manchin of West Virginia, has already met with the senator, and I think there are a couple of others who've said they will meet with Judge Kavanaugh. Uh, But uh, um, the the, uh, others, uh, the Senate uh, leader, uh, Democratic leader Chuck Schumer, the ranking member of the Judiciary Committee, Dianne Feinstein, have not yet met with this nominee in this uh, process. I expect that over the coming weeks they will. Can you give us a sense of the dynamics based on your own experience, what's happening behind closed doors in these Senate offices, what the senators are asking, and what the nominee will and will not talk about? Well, it's funny. I've been on both sides of it. I've, I worked, uh, as you may know, for um, for Senator Ted Kennedy and then Senator Harry Reid. And so I had nominees coming in to meet with my bosses, and I was present at those meetings. And then I worked in the executive branch as well and accompanied nominees, not Supreme Court nominees, but other judicial nominees, to courtesy visits. Um, in this setting, as in other settings, nominees will be cautious not to comment on pending cases, uh, but they're asked about their judicial philosophy. And these courtesy meetings, because they're not 
non-public tend to be more casual. There might be some uh, banter, some talk about you know hobbies and family, um, uh, but uh, the, the the senators will turn to the issues and try to begin to understand the nominee's judicial philosophy. Before proceeding, let's talk about your own background and your involvement in these judicial nominees. Well, I worked for Senator Ted Kennedy from 1990 to 97, so I was in his office when uh, the nominees of President George H.W. Bush came through. That was uh, David Souter and Clarence Thomas. Then I was present when President Clinton's nominees, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Stephen Breyer, came through. Uh, Then uh, later, I worked for Harry Reid when now Chief Justice Roberts and now Justice Alito came through the process. And finally, in my time at the Justice Department, when I was an assistant attorney general, I helped prepare uh, Sonia Sotomayor and Elena Kagan for their confirmation hearings before the Senate. So I saw it from both angles. And we want to talk about that preparation process. But let's go back to 1987 and the nomination of Robert Bork, uh, the seat uh, that has been held by Anthony Kennedy until he retired at the end of last month. And the issue of privacy, because this moment seemed to be a defining moment in how judicial nominees answer questions. Here is Judge Robert Bork answering the question by Senator Edward Kennedy. Senator Kennedy, at the outset, let me say this. I have the greatest respect for the Bill of Rights, and I will enforce the Bill of Rights. I have enforced the Bill of Rights. What we were talking about here was a generalized, undefined right of privacy, which does not, is not in the Bill of Rights. Now, as I, said this, as I said in my opening statement, a judge has to apply law, and the law comes from the text, the history, and the structure of the Constitution. There are important aspects of privacy in the Bill of Rights. This Congress has increased privacy in many ways by statute. As a society, we value it. But as a judge, I don't think I can tell the American people they may not have a law that in no way conflicts with the written and historical Constitution. Judge Robert Bork, September 15, 1987, the Senate rejecting his nomination. Why was that a defining moment? Judge Bork was an unusual nominee because he had a voluminous paper trail. He had been a professor at Yale Law School and had written extensively and provocatively about constitutional issues. So he couldn't stand behind the kind of notion that he was only a judge applying the law or he was only a lawyer representing a client. These were his views and he couldn't run from them. And he decided, he and his uh, strategists decided that he would put it all out there and be forthright about his views of the Constitution. Those views turned out to be unacceptable to the Senate. Did that change how subsequent presidents, beginning with George H.W. Bush, selected their Supreme Court nominees? I would say so. I think judges, uh, uh, since that time, presidents have been reluctant to nominate people with that kind of paper trail. Now, there have been law professors nominated. Stephen Breyer and Elena Kagan had both been in the academy, um, but neither of them had the kind of extensive paper trail on controversial constitutional issues that Robert Bork did. So uh, absolutely, presidents were looking for uh, kind of blank slates. Uh, They wanted to know the views and the orientation of the nominee, but they didn't want those views to be public. From your vantage point as a law school dean looking at the Brett Kavanaugh nomination and his paper trail, what do we know about him? 
Well, Brett Kavanaugh has been a judge on the D.C. Circuit for uh, a dozen years or so. Uh, so he has many judicial opinions, and that's where you'd start uh, to understand his judicial philosophy. Look at what he's written as a judge. Of course, it's very different being um, a federal court of appeals judge where you're obligated to apply Supreme Court precedent than to be a Supreme Court justice where you get to consider those precedents fresh. Um, and uh, so it's only a starting point, but you'd look at his judicial opinions. Before he was on the bench, Judge Kavanaugh uh, was uh, staff secretary to President George W. Bush and had uh, a position with the Ken Starr investigation of President Clinton. So he had um, a legal career that um, is really ripe for examination. Judge Kavanaugh will argue that uh, the views that he expressed in those positions don't tell you what kind of Supreme Court justice he would be, but uh, senators will rightly uh, want to have a fuller picture of the man and his philosophy. Another defining moment, the confirmation hearing for the current chief justice of the Supreme Court, John Roberts, and the baseball analogy that he put on the table. This is from September 2005. A certain humility should characterize the judicial role. Judges and justices are servants of the law, not the other way around. Judges are like umpires. Umpires don't make the rules, they apply them. The role of an umpire and a judge is critical. They make sure everybody plays by the rules, but it is a limited role. Nobody ever went to a ball game to see the umpire. Judges have to have the humility to recognize that they operate within a system of precedent shaped by other judges equally striving to live up to the judicial oath. And judges have to have the modesty to be open in the decisional process to the considered views of their colleagues on the bench. You had a front row seat to this process. First, your reaction to his answer 12 years ago. Well, Chief Justice Roberts, now Chief Justice Roberts, uh, described the ideal. Yes, of course, we hope that judges are uh, impartial and not biased by their own life experiences, by their political views, by their policy views. Um, but it's not realistic. If that were true, um, just as with umpires, we just select any umpire, uh, hopefully good ones with good eyesight, to officiate at the World Series, um, you know, w w the president would just choose a, a judge, choose a good lawyer, choose a, a, a law professor. Um, that's not what happens. They're looking for individuals who have a philosophy. They expect the nominee will bring a certain philosophy to the bench. And similarly, the Senate is uh, aware of the fact that uh, the nominee will approach uh, the questions based on that kind of ideology. So it's perfectly legitimate for the Senate to explore the ideology. Um, at the same time, we should recognize that judges are not political figures. They're not elected. Um, and we shouldn't uh, treat this as more of a political process than it already is. Let's be honest. It has become very politicized, um, but that's not so healthy for the judiciary. And uh, I think Chief Justice Roberts was expressing almost a hope, a fervent hope, that he could be treated simply as an umpire, when in fact uh, the reality is that there are umpires with wider strike zones than others. And of course it goes without saying, based on what the framers put in place in the Constitution, once appointed and confirmed by the Senate to the Supreme Court, it is a lifetime appointment. Right. They serve as long as they uh, are engaged in good behavior, not, not uh, subject to impeachment. So it's a major moment in the life of our 
democracy when a Supreme Court nominee is before the Senate. It's very special because really the three branches are uh, joined together at this moment, the president having nominated, the Senate, uh, the legislative branch, uh, having the ability to confirm or deny confirmation. And then uh, the judiciary, of course, is uh, the, 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 uh, the branch that's at stake here. And to that point, Dean Weich, if you look at the process today and compare it to 40, 50, 60 years ago, it's a much longer process for these nominees. Well, do you know, it was only uh, Felix Frankfurter in 1941, I believe, who began the tradition of nominees appearing before the Senate Judiciary Committee. Before that time, it was strictly a paper review. Um, so it is a fairly recent history of this kind of uh, dramatic public spectacle of the nomination hearing and everything that leads up to it and that follows it. I want to talk about the process that these nominees are now undergoing to prepare for the hearings. And let's go back to Senator Jeff Sessions from July of 2009 and the nomination of Sonia Sotomayor, now on the Supreme Court, nominated by President Barack Obama. Well, do you stand by your statement that my experiences affect the facts I choose to see? No, sir. I don't stand by the understanding of that statement that I will ignore other facts or other experiences because I haven't had them. I do believe that life experiences are important to the process of judging. They help you to understand and listen, but that the law requires a result, and it will command you to the facts that are relevant to the disposition of the case. So let me break that down first. What was Senator Jeff Sessions at the time, Republican from Alabama, looking for? And then the response from now Justice Sonia Sotomayor. Justice Sotomayor, then Judge Sotomayor, had uh, made a statement that suggested that her experience as a Latina uh, woman um, had certain experiences and that she thought, uh, you know, that was important, uh, that was relevant to, to her judging. Um, Senator Sessions was saying, wait a minute, are you saying that that makes you a different kind of a judge than someone who's not um, Hispanic? Um, and you saw Judge Sotomayor withdraw from that assertion. It was interesting. She was, uh, I think, remarkably um, willing to uh, say that she didn't stand by that precise formulation. Uh, but she did defend the proposition that life experience is relevant to judging. It absolutely is. That's my experience, having been before many judges and now in the process of educating law students. It would be foolish to think that judges are robots. They're not. They're human beings, and they bring their life experiences to the courtroom. Which leads to the debate on the Constitution, whether or not you are an originalist or whether the Constitution is an evolving document. Right. I mean, that is uh, a longstanding debate. I think there are um, lots of gradations now. Um, Justice Scalia was famously an originalist. And then other judges will talk about the importance of beginning with the text, the original text and the original understanding of the text. Some of these labels have become stale and just sort of fodder for academic discussion. Um, in the confirmation hearing, I'm sure Judge Kavanaugh will be asked whether he is an originalist, and I'm sure he'll somewhat tether himself to uh, the Scalia tradition of, of uh, uh, believing that the text is fixed. Um, but he'll also say that it obviously evolves because the framers couldn't have anticipated modern technology and modern circumstances. So he'll recognize, he'll, he'll, he'll uh, give a gesture towards the notion that the Constitution has to be understood in a modern context. I'm fascinated to learn that these hearings are a relatively new phenomenon in terms of American history that really 
Since the 1950s and 60s, they've become media events or spectacles, and even more so today. That wasn't the case with previous presidents. That's true. That's true. Um, I think uh, the whole confirmation process was lower visibility. Um, And you saw presidents nominating individuals who weren't identified with a particular ideology. Famously, President Eisenhower nominated uh, William Brennan and uh, Earl Warren, who turned out to be great, you know, progressive liberal justices. And Eisenhower had really no sense of of who they were at the time he nominated them. Um, Warren had been a political figure as governor of California. Um, But uh, um, now, and especially in the wake of the Bork process, as you describe it, um, presidents are acutely sensitive to the ideology and the reputation of the individuals they nominate. And the Senate does its best to catch up and try and find out what they can find out. But it's rare that a nominee is rejected. Judge Bork is one of the few. President Bill Clinton's first nominee to the high court was Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She still serves on the Supreme Court. And it became known as the Ginsburg Rule. In a moment, I want you to react to the question from then-Senator Strom Thurmond of South Carolina. But what is the Ginsburg Rule? Well, it has become a bit of a an article of faith among conservative commentators that Justice Ginsburg articulated some new rule that she wouldn't answer questions about pending cases. That's not her rule. Um, nominees before and uh, many nominees since have said the same thing. No nominee will commit to a position on a pending case or a case uh, controversy that's likely to come before them uh, in the future. So it really doesn't emanate from Justice Ginsburg. Um, but um, she, and along with others, said that she wasn't going to answer, uh, she wasn't going to judge disputes uh, in the abstract in a confirmation hearing. And again, this was six years after the Senate rejected the Robert Bork nomination. Right. July 1993, beginning with a question from then-Senator Strom Thurmond, Republican. Based upon your understanding of the U.S. Constitution, do communities, cities, counties, and states have sufficient flexibility to experiment... <clears throat> with and provide for diverse educational environments aided by public funding and geared to the particular needs of individual students of that particular area or jurisdiction. Senator Thurman, that's the kind of question that a judge cannot answer at large. The judge will consider a specific program in a specific school situation together with the legal arguments for or against that program, but it it cannot be answered in the abstract. That's not the way, as you so well know, judges work from the particular case, not from the general proposition. The confirmation hearing for Ruth Bader Ginsburg from July 1993, and we are talking with Ronald Weich. He is the dean of the School of Law at the University of Baltimore, you were there when her confirmation process uh, was in place. How did she I was. prepare? If you, if you watch the documentary, RBG, and you don't blink, you might see me sitting behind Senator Kennedy. So how did she prepare for this? Well, uh, since I was working in the legislative branch at the time, I wasn't part of her preparation. But I'm sure what happened is that she engaged in a lot of mock confirmation hearings with individuals from the White House and the Justice Department, because that's what we did when I was in the executive branch and the nominations of Sonia Sotomayor and Elena Kagan came through. There were individuals who played each of the senators on the Judiciary Committee and asked questions that they were likely to ask, and they gave the nominee a chance to answer in that uh, private session, and then 
the nominee's uh, performance in those mock hearings or murder boards uh, would be critiqued by the staffers in the room. Um, so it's the kind of process that any lawyer would go through before uh, a kind of court appearance. In this case, the uh, litigation is before the Senate. When you were going through this process, specifically, where did it take place, and how did you review the performance of the judicial nominee, and how long did it take? Uh, the particular mock hearings that I participated in for those two nominees took place at the old executive office building, uh, so in the White House, but not the West Wing, but sort of one of the office buildings next to it. Um, and, um, you know, it was a, a pretty um, relaxed process. Uh, people were... Uh, taking very seriously the task at hand, but it was jocular and there was a lot of, uh, a lot of pizza, a lot of donuts, uh, a lot of coffee. Um, and of course, the nominee is in a very tense, sensitive moment in his or her life, and everyone is respectful of that. And we took breaks and made sure that there were a chance for the nominee to kind of collect herself. Was there a coaching process for the nominee? Don't oh. say this, say this, phrase it that way. Um, suggestions are made. Yes, I, I don't know if I would call it coaching, um, but uh, there was an, an attempt to, uh, to to offer advice. Um, and the people in the room tend to have been people who have been involved in these hearings before, as I was, um, having worked in the Senate. Um, and then we spoke earlier about the Sherpa. So the individual who's been leading the nominee around will typically be in those sessions. That's an individual who knows the Senate and the senators very well. As you look at the history of Supreme Court nominees, who has fared well and who has performed badly? I was very impressed with Elena Kagan and John Roberts. They uh, both did a, a great job, and it's no accident that um, they uh, Roberts did this for a living. <laughs> he was an appellate advocate, and so he was especially good at parrying questions. He did it in uh, many, many Supreme Court arguments and, and, and lower federal court arguments as uh, his career. And so when it came time for his confirmation hearing, he was in a setting that he was pretty comfortable with. Uh, Justice Kagan, interestingly, Elena Kagan had not been an appellate lawyer before she was President Obama's first solicitor general. But in that role, uh, she had a number of Supreme Court arguments. And she just had a personality and a, a skill uh, that was very disarming and effective. Famously, Senator Lindsey Graham wanted to ask her about a, a, a terrorist incident that had occurred. And he said, uh, where were you on uh, Christmas Day, uh, uh, 2009? And she said, like other Jews, I was in a Chinese restaurant. <laughs> and it brought down the house and it relaxed everybody. Uh, those moments of levity are actually very important for a nominee. Let's turn our attention to the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh. And this one moment from May of 2006, the confirmation hearing for him to serve on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, and a question from Senator Chuck Schumer, Democrat of New York, continues to get replayed in advance of the confirmation hearing for Brett Kavanaugh. Let's listen. And let me ask you to answer, since my time is ending here, the two other questions. Do you consider... Uh, Roe v. Wade to be an abomination? I, and do you consider yourself to be a judicial nominee, like the president said he was going to nominate people in the mold of Scalia and Thomas? Senator, on the question of Roe v. Wade, if confirmed to the D.C. Circuit, I would follow Roe v. Wade faithfully and fully. That would be binding precedent in the court. It's been decided by the Supreme I Court. you your own opinion. And, I, and I'm saying if I were confirmed to the D.C. Circuit, Senator, I would follow it. It's been reaffirmed many times, including in Planned Parenthood versus I understand, Kate. but what is your opinion? You're not on the bench yet. 
you've talked about these issues in the past to other people, I'm sure. The Supreme Court has held repeatedly, Senator, and I don't think it would okay. be appropriate for me to give a personal view on that question. case. Dean Weich, let me follow up on the question that Senator Schumer was asking. What was he looking for and the response by Brett Kavanaugh? So he wanted to find out whether Brett Kavanaugh supports, believes in the uh, holding of Roe versus Wade, that a woman has a right to reproductive choice. Um, Kavanaugh dodged it and was able to dodge it in this setting, the one you just played, because he was a nominee to a lower federal court, the D.C. Circuit. So he could, if you will, get away with uh, the answer, I'll apply the precedent. That's his job as a lower federal court judge. That answer will not hold water in the upcoming hearing because um, the Supreme Court justices have the opportunity to overturn precedents. And certainly Roe versus Wade is one that has been um, subject to that kind of discussion. Um, so I would expect that the Democratic senators will press hard to find out whether Kavanaugh supports Roe v. Wade. And let me say, this goes back to the so-called Ginsburg rule that you raised uh, earlier. It's true that Justice Ginsburg and many other nominees refuse to prejudge cases, and that's appropriate. But nominees should be willing to answer the question, do you agree with a prior precedent? That is different. That's not prejudging an outcome. And uh, most nominees uh, were willing to say, for example, that they um, accept the holding in Brown versus Board of Education or Griswold versus Connecticut, which established a right to contraceptives. Um, and a nominee who is unwilling to express at least uh, general support for a precedent raises the question of whether this is uh, an activist judge who's going to be inclined to overturn that precedent. And that becomes a basis for um, a, a vote for or against a nominee. Based on our conversation and your own experience, how do you think he will answer the question or questions? Because there will be many. Yes. I, I'm not in those sessions, the prep sessions. Uh, I'm just up in Baltimore educating law students uh, these days. So, so I don't know. Brett Kavanaugh is a very uh, smart, skilled guy. I'm sure he's thinking carefully about this. I think he's going to attempt to walk a tightrope. He's going to say that he supports the right to privacy in a general way. He's going to say that precedent is important and he's disinclined to overturn it. But the senators will press him and really try to read between the lines. And the Democratic senators, I think, are going to be skeptical. Here's a nominee of a president who has said he wants to nominate judges to overturn Roe. They're going to um, uh, think that there's a presumption, I think reasonably a presumption, that this nominee is hostile to Roe. And he would have to overcome that presumption to get their votes. That said, let's be honest, he's not likely to get many Democratic votes, if any. And uh, really, the audience here is very small. It's a couple of pro-choice Republican senators. And then on the other side, there are three or four Democratic senators who might be inclined to vote for uh, this nominee. Uh, so it's uh, a lot of production and a lot of uh, advertising dollars being spent on both sides to try and influence the outcome of four or five, six senators. And the other issue seems to be torture and waterboarding and documents during his time, as you pointed out earlier in the George W. Bush administration. Here is Senator Dick Durbin, Democrat of Illinois, also from May of 2006. What was your role in the original Haynes nomination and decision to renominate it? And at the time of the nomination, what did you know about Mr. Haynes' role in crafting the administration's detention and interrogation policies? Uh, Senator, I did not, uh, I was not involved and am not involved in the questions about the rules governing, governing uh, detention of combatants or uh, uh, 
And, and so I, didn't, I do not have any involvement with that. And with respect to Mr. Haynes' nomination, uh, I have uh, I know Jim Haynes, but I, it was not one of the nominations that I handled. I handled a number of nominations in the council's office. That was not one of the ones that I handled. From 2006, Senator Dick Durbin and Brett Kavanaugh, how is this issue going to play out? So this is significant. Jim Haynes was an individual who was nominated to be the general counsel of the Defense Department. He was not a judicial nominee. Um, but uh, here, Kavanaugh is asked about his involvement in detainee policies that were crafted in part by this nominee, Jim Haynes. Um, and Kavanaugh says he was not involved. He says, flatly, under oath, I played no role. Well, since then, it turns out that as staff secretary, he may have played some role. He may have written some memos. And this is one of the issues that Democratic senators are, are pressing on when they say they want to see the paperwork. They want to see the memos that um, Kavanaugh was involved in as staff secretary. If it turns out that Kavanaugh did play a role in advising President Bush and other officials about detainee policy, um, it would seem that he's uh, caught in uh, a bit of an untruth. Now, he may be able to explain it in some fashion, but uh, he would have to explain it. Otherwise, um, the nominee uh, would really be subject to, to significant criticism for uh, misstating something significant under oath. And finally, let's talk about a Supreme Court nominee who did not get a hearing on Capitol Hill, Merrick Garland. He was appointed in the winter of 2016 by President Barack Obama. Did that forever change how Senate Democrats and Republicans take up these nominees? Yes. And let me say that I think it's disgraceful that a judge as respected and as worthy as Merrick Garland did not receive even the courtesy of a hearing, much less an up-down vote in the Senate. Remember that Justice Scalia died early in 2016. There was ample time for the Senate to consider President Obama's nomination of uh, Judge Garland. Um, we see now that the nomination process of Judge Kavanaugh is going to play out over a matter of two or three months. There's no reason why Judge Garland couldn't have uh, been considered. He was uh, really something of a consensus choice. He's a moderate uh, judge, um, former Justice Department official. And the fact that the Senate uh, did not take up that nomination, I think, hardened a lot of bad feelings. Certainly the Democratic senators uh, are resentful of that, and they feel that um, the, the Republicans, in effect, stole the seat. And now we have a president elected uh, with a minority of the popular vote um, who has an opportunity to reshape the court for generations to come. He's already placed uh, Neil Gorsuch on the Supreme Court. He now has the Kavanaugh nomination pending, and there's a great fear that he would have uh, even more nominations to come. And yet, uh, President Obama's nomination uh, of, of Justice Garland wasn't even considered. So there are bad feelings. I think uh, the uh, treatment of Judge Garland has brought the Supreme Court confirmation process to an even lower place than it was before. What will happen with the Kavanaugh nomination moving ahead? What do you expect? Well, these hearings are um, sometimes surprising. <laughs> and I'll just say two words, Clarence Thomas. Uh, really, uh, the Thomas nomination was cruising along. There were supporters, there were opponents, but nobody expected uh, Nita Hill to come forward and for there to be that weekend of uh, discussions of, uh, of uh, pornography and other kinds of uh, matters, sexual harassment and so forth. Um, so we don't know what's coming. I'm not suggesting that Judge Kavanaugh is going to have that kind of hearing, uh, that particular kind of hearing, but there are issues to be explored. Um, and uh, um, on the math, as it stands now, remember the rules of the Senate have changed. It used to be that uh, the filibuster was available to the minority, even for judicial nominations and Supreme Court nominations, and that's no longer the case. The rules have been changed first by uh, 
the Democrats uh, with respect to lower federal court nominees in 2013, and then with respect to the Supreme Court in the context of the Gorsuch nomination. So now it's a simple majority vote, 51 votes. There are 51 um, Republican senators. Um, Senator McCain is ill, but uh, still uh, the, the Senate majority would have the ability to confirm Judge Kavanaugh on a party line vote. And at the moment, uh, that seems like a likely result, but I think it's too early to make a final prediction and there are issues to be explored. This is an important enough matter for the Senate to not just go through the motions, but to genuinely explore whether this is an individual who should sit on the Supreme Court for the next 30 or 40 years. Ron White, he is the dean of the School of Law at the University of Baltimore, a graduate of Yale Law School. We appreciate your insights and your perspectives. Could I uh, offer one plug? At the University of Baltimore, we're sponsoring a, a, what's called a MOOC, a massive online uh, open course on the Supreme Court uh, featuring Lyle Denniston, a famous Supreme Court reporter. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm a participant in that, and I'd encourage people to go to the University of Baltimore Law School website to find out more. We thank you for that as well. And thank you for listening to C-SPAN's The Weekly, now available on Spotify, as well as Apple iTunes, or wherever you download your favorite podcast. 